This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. I swear to God, if that was a white college girl who went missing... The whole world would be all over. You would have Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC in Southwest Florida covering that. Without a doubt. And I don't want to get into any of the politics of race, but you you look at this culturally, and there is no doubt in my mind that this story just wasn't covered as much uh, because it was a young black male and an illegal immigrant. Trey Radel is a longtime Southwest Florida broadcaster. He was among the first, probably the first, to report on the disappearance of Terrence Williams. Terrence vanished in January 2004 after witnesses saw him get into the patrol car of Deputy Stephen Calkins in Naples, Florida. Radel also reported on the disappearance of Felipe Santos. Felipe was last seen with Calkins, too. Radel, now the host of a local Fox radio show, was working for a CBS News affiliate at the time of the disappearances. I've covered a lot of stuff, and I, I grew up, this is all going to sound a little dark, I grew up in the funeral industry. Working in the funeral industry, working in TV news, or as journalists, as you all know, you can get a little hardened to stories. To this day, that the story of, of Terrence and Felipe disturbs the hell out of me. It's really damn hard to just disappear. And for two people with the same deputy for that to happen to, something is horribly wrong. And there is no justice so far. Radel's conversation with my colleague Ryan Mills turned to how our local newspapers first covered Terrence's disappearance. Naples Daily was... Naples you know, Daily was pretty bad. <laughs> there, was a, there was a press conference that was a week and a half after he disappeared. And I think the Naples Daily News ran a little like missing persons brief in the paper and that was it. The news press did more than the neighborhood really? news did, yeah. Why, 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 why? I get a little infuriated when you start looking at where coverage goes. One reason my colleagues and I began this project was to finally do the deep reporting this story deserves. The disappearances of Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos nearly 20 years ago are one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in Southwest Florida. We saw this podcast as a reckoning of how the sheriff's office handled the cases, but also how we, the media, covered them. At that time, the Naples Daily News and the Fort Myers News Press were fierce competitors. It was boom times for our newspapers. Reporting staffs were robust compared to now. Local news revenues have plummeted in the years since. The papers merged and are now both owned by Gannett, my employer. The disappearances were a local story, but not a national one for a very long time. Media coverage ramped up 10 years ago, nearly a decade after the men disappeared. And that was only after a famous, and famously generous, actor and producer learned of the cold cases. I'm Janine Zeitlin, and this is The Last Ride from the USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media, distributed by the NPR Network. Episode 6, The Tyler Perry Effect. In this episode, we'll scrutinize the media coverage of these cases, the mistakes, and our own failings. We'll discover how a letter to the editor in the Naples Daily News, a letter written by Terrence's mother, Marcia Williams, played a powerful role in this mystery. 
And after a year of trying to interview a very busy Tyler Perry, I finally spoke with him on Zoom in 2022. Can you talk a little bit about what it is about these two cases that made you want to use your platform to bring attention to them? Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times when someone disappears, there are no clues. You know, if the case isn't solved within a certain amount of time, it's never solved. Well, with this case, to have someone who was exhibiting such strange and what some would say guilty behavior, I just felt the outrage in that in my gut, and I wanted to do it whatever I could to help bring attention to it. And also, I think the thing that made me really, really start to throw everything I had at it was seeing Marcia Williams and her fight for her son and being this black woman in Collier County, Florida, who felt powerless and had no one to help get her a microphone as she was doing everything she can. So I just wanted to join forces with her to help amplify her voice in her fight. Families often don't face that struggle for attention when the missing person is a young white woman. When we began putting together this podcast, the story of Gabby Petito was dominating local and national headlines. The 22-year-old disappeared in 2021 during a road trip with her boyfriend. They had set out for the van life. When her parents reported her missing, the police held a press conference, and the coverage was immediate. One of my colleagues joined the media throng in Northport, where her boyfriend's parents lived. It's also in southwest Florida, about an hour and a half north of Naples. The coverage of her disappearance, the discovery of her remains in Wyoming, and the search for her boyfriend, who killed himself, was relentless. Going back further, in 2001, I was a newspaper intern in D.C. when another D.C. intern, Chandra Levy, who worked for the government, disappeared. Congressman Gary Condit came under suspicion after it was reported the older and married congressman had a relationship with 24-year-old Levy. I was assigned to the media mob staking out Condit's home. I felt conflicted about being part of the round-the-clock coverage, but frankly, it was exciting to be on such a big story. Levy's remains were found a year later. Condit has denied having an affair with Levy and having anything to do with her murder. These stories are tragic. But it was also tragic that Terrence's family begged for national media attention for several years before the disappearances of Terrence and Felipe gained an ounce of national coverage. Research shows that there are broad disparities in media coverage of missing people. White women, particularly ones who are young and pretty like Gabby Petito and Chandra Levy, get far more coverage than missing people of color. And men. It's a bias known as the missing white woman syndrome. I took a journalism class on the topic in college, and I do feel like there is more awareness of the disparity now. Awareness is good, but have media organizations made any actual changes? I wanted to ask my colleague Melanie Payne for her thoughts. She's a mentor and friend. Melanie, Ryan, and I started working on this podcast together before they left for other jobs. Melanie and I had many conversations over the years about these disappearances. They were often in her old office where a front-page clipping about the case from a community newspaper hung on her wall. For some context, I'm white. Melanie is not. I'm black, and, and that's a very important identity for me. And it may be why, you know, I felt I identified so much with his mother. We talked about another disappearance that was all over the news during the time the families of Felipe and Terrence were still waiting for coverage. Natalie Holloway vanished in 2005, a few years after Felipe and Terrence went missing. Holloway was 18, blonde, white, and pretty. 
She disappeared on a class trip to Aruba. She has not been found. There was just waves of coverage as Terrence's mother was trying to get the national media to take note of the story. And, you know, when I think about other cases over the years that get these waves of coverage, and then oftentimes there are these reaction pieces critical of the media saying, you know, why do the media just focus on missing white women? But I don't see that it has changed. Do you think we, the media, has gotten any better? We have web pages with tons of space, tons of space. There is absolutely no reason why we don't post missing persons every time the sheriff's office gets one of them. And no, we haven't gotten any better. And I just don't even, I have no idea what to do about that and how to make people care because they don't care until it's somebody in their family. In 2022, the Columbia Journalism Review came out with a tool that analyzes thousands of stories and demographic data to estimate how much coverage a person would receive if they went missing. You can find it at rupressworthy.com. Their research found that how much press a missing person gets depends on their race, sex, age, and where they live. I put Felipe's demographics into the calculator. As a 23-year-old Hispanic man, he would get 19 stories. Terrence, a 27-year-old black man, would get only seven. Both did eventually get more because of the strange circumstances of their disappearances and the influence of Tyler Perry. I am worth 21. If Melanie were my age, she would get nine. But she's two decades older, so she would get a measly six. How many stories would a missing white woman in her early 20s get? More than 120. Clearly, it's an inequity that needs fixing. I brought the question of how to improve missing persons coverage to my newsroom. We talked about it in a staff meeting, and it became clear there was not a quick fix. Some journalists felt there were good reasons not to post about every missing person. For one, readers may stop paying attention if there is a constant stream of alerts. At the same time, media attention matters. A lot. Experts say coverage can impact whether people are eventually found. An example. In the case of Gabby Petito, media coverage helped locate her remains. If everybody had the severe national media attention that handpicked chosen cases have had over the years. Monica Kaysen is the founder of the national nonprofit Q Center for Missing Persons. She's also a longtime advocate for the families of Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams. If you had national media exposure running hard for a couple of days, which I know is impossible because there are so many missing people, what it would bring forth and let everybody know. I've been in Naples even after all these years, and there's still people that don't know about Terrence's case. Kaysen said when the coverage happens matters, too. Some of these cases are like, oh, they've been missing for three months. We're, we're just now putting a newspaper article out. I think a lot of cases lose the opportunity to have that solid good tip at the beginning because they wait so long. One of my goals was to figure out if there was anything I could do to improve coverage of missing people. While fully recognizing I am short on power, I can't make the current local news crisis go away. I can't hire more reporters, and I alone cannot report on every missing person in Florida, where, on average, the state counts more than 30,000 reports of people missing each year. 
The good news is that the vast majority of missing people are found quickly, alive, and unharmed. So it's understandable, given staff constraints in local newsrooms, that the media doesn't cover all of them. Yet, I had firsthand experience of witnessing when they should have. And maybe if they would have, it could have helped. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Medical emergencies, travel delays, canceled flights, anything can happen when you travel. That's why more than 70 million American travelers choose Allianz Travel Insurance to help them with headaches along the way. Get a quote and learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's go back and trace how the media disparities in these cases unfolded. As far as we can tell, there was no news coverage and no press release from the sheriff's office when Felipe Santos— an undocumented immigrant, disappeared in October 2003, three months before Terrence Williams vanished. Felipe and his brothers were from an indigenous part of Oaxaca, Mexico. They were in southwest Florida to work. Julia Perkins of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, a farm workers' rights group, advocated for the family. She said Felipe's brothers didn't feel entirely safe in the media spotlight. Culturally, it's not where they come from. It's not how they're used to doing things. I think a lot of it has to do as well with, you know, this isn't a system that they necessarily know how to push or to use or who would they call in the media. Terrence's family did push for answers through the media, and they were persistent, which is exactly what someone should do if a loved one goes missing in a strange way, says David Thomas, a forensic studies professor at Florida Gulf Coast University. He's also a retired cop. If I had a son or a daughter or a relative that was missing, I would raise holy hell until somebody listened to me in order to get them to do what needs to be done. And if that meant having to write an op-ed in the paper, if that meant getting on the local news and start to complain, then that's what I would do. I couldn't let up off the gas. Terrence's family pushed the sheriff's office to hold a press conference. A sheriff's press conference for a missing adult is rare in southwest Florida. It happened about 10 days after Terrence vanished in January 2004. 
At the time, Terrence's family didn't know Felipe Santos had disappeared. Prior to that news conference, Terrence's stepfather, Terrence Bug, said local journalists, aside from Trey Radel, did not want to touch the story. Trey Radel set the whole thing up. It only happened because of him, because when we went to the media, they said, oh, we, we're not accusing the sheriff of nothing. That was out of fear. And he said, look, I got this thing set up. Uh, we're going to do a press conference down at the police station. And he said, tell your story. My wife couldn't talk. She was too upset. So I did the talking. And I, I said everything I wanted to say. I said, this police department hasn't done the job that they should be doing. I said, they're not looking. Me and my wife did all the finding out the information. I said, you got a problem with that police officer. That took him. It's not clear how much of what Terrence Bug said that day made it on air. We couldn't get our hands on those early broadcast tapes. But essentially, Bug was calling out Calkins and the sheriff's office at the sheriff's office. Did they not want you to mention Calkins at all? No, they didn't want me to mention his name. I said, I will, and I have, and I'm going to keep on. I said, everybody I talk to, I tell it was him. I said, if I ever see him, I'll point him out. Terrence's stepfather said the sheriff at the time asked him not to share his opinions publicly. I said, but you can't put a gag order on me. That's what the sheriff tried to do. He said, don't be going around talking about it. I said, to hell with you and to hell with your deputies. Somebody in there stinks. Stephen Calkins has never been arrested or charged in the disappearances. He has long denied any criminal wrongdoing. Yet, he remains the only person of interest. Calkins was named by the Fort Myers News Press in early coverage of Terrence's disappearance. That was because Terrence's family identified him, not the sheriff's office. Collier Sheriff Don Hunter, now retired, initially called the cases an extreme coincidence. In the first few years after the disappearances, he told the press several times there was no evidence of foul play. News coverage came up when the sheriff's office questioned Calkins. This interview reveals how Calkins felt about the media attention. I've already heard it on the newspaper, and I've already heard it on the Channel 7 News, and my wife was upset, and it just, it made me angry, but I, I can hack it. I can take it. The interview was done a month after Terrence disappeared. Terrence's mother and stepfather had filed a complaint against Deputy Calkins because of what they discovered through their own sleuthing. Remember, Terrence's family said law enforcement didn't initially treat the search for Terrence with urgency. So his family started looking. They found out where his car was towed from. They found witnesses who said a deputy had pulled Terrence over near a cemetery, left with Terrence in his patrol car, and returned alone. And they discovered the deputy's name, Stephen Calkins. And when Calkins said he gave Terrence a ride to a Circle K, Terrence's stepfather went to the Circle K, checked the footage, and did not see Terrence. Talking to the cemetery people, the Circle K, the NAACP, they're getting all these things in their heads. They should have just come to me. Can't they just come and talk? That's too late now. They're too quick to uh, attack. They're too quick to accuse. You know, I told my wife a hundred times, you know, if that had been my son, instead of running all over the barn, all around the town, I'd have gone back and talked to that deputy at the substation the next day, and I'd have been glad to talk to him. But not now. Now I'm a little angry at him. Because if this had happened to my kid, I'd have gone right back to that deputy. What can you tell me about my son? Please. What's up? Let's go to dinner. (laughs) That's just, that's the way I feel about it. But when I see it on the news, that pisses me off. 
His outrage sounded a little disingenuous, and here's why. As we heard in an earlier episode, four days after Terrence disappeared, a dispatcher told Calkins the family of a missing man he had stopped was repeatedly calling the sheriff's office for information. And Terrence's mother said they did try to reach Calkins early on, but he didn't return their calls. In the beginning, they did put a picture of Terrence in his mailbox. That's what I was told. I never heard from him to even ask him anything. I was never given that opportunity. Like, where did you take him? Why did you pull him over? What was your real reason? Terrence's relatives weren't the only ones trying to talk to Calkins. The media has come knocking on his door. But he's not spoken out publicly aside from brief interviews in the first few years after the disappearances, including the one with me on his doorstep, which seems to be the last time he spoke with a reporter. Trey Radel shared his thoughts on Calkins' silence. I mean, if you are a deputy accused of murder of two people, you stay silent, say, oh, it's just a coincidence. I'm sorry, but that's not a reaction that any normal being would have. If you're being accused of murder by the public, you'd think that you'd probably lawyer up, go on Good Morning America, whatever you do in that kind of a situation, and say, this is wrong. I am a man who joined the sheriff's office to do good for the community. I'm being accused of this. It's ruining my life. Nothing like that. Something is not right. Years after the disappearances, in an exchange with a lawyer for Terrence's family, Calkin said he felt wronged by the media. Now, do you feel that you've been defamed with respect to either the Terrence Williams or the uh, Felipe Santos matters? Defamed? Yeah, that lies have been told about you. You've been painted in an unfair light. To a certain degree, yes. And who is it that you believe, or what entities do you believe um, did this to you? Press. The media, okay. So, uh, me personally, if somebody defamed me, I would sue them. Uh, Because I want to clear my name. I, I believe I have a good name and I want to keep it clean. Did you try to clear your name through any type of legal action? Legal action? Yes. Um, no, not really. Why not? Why? I couldn't afford an attorney for one thing. As I've said, the national media didn't pick up the story for years, and some local outlets barely covered it early on. After the late January 2004 press conference on Terrence's disappearance, the Naples Daily News ran a very short brief on page 3 of the local section. It did not mention the deputy connection. We couldn't find coverage from our partner on this podcast, local NPR affiliate WGCU. Their executive producer dug through digital archives but couldn't find anything related to Terrence or Felipe. She said they had a small newsroom at the time, which left a lot of local news uncovered. Our colleague, Dennis Husty of the Fort Myers News Press, did cover the story when Terrence's disappearance came to light. Now retired, Husty recalled Terrence's mother reaching out to the newsroom. And I give a lot of the credit for this coming to light because of the mother's persistence. Uh, She kept repeatedly calling the sheriff's office. And they, in turn, were asking the deputy involved uh, for the reports and everything. Meanwhile, at the Naples Daily News, crickets. 
In the archives, I didn't see a story beyond the press conference brief for the first several months. I tried reaching the crime reporter from that time to ask why, but didn't hear back. Though I didn't find much coverage in the archives within the first year of the disappearances, I did find something else. From March 2004, buried on page D17, four sections deep into the Naples Daily News. In the opinion section, it was a letter to the editor written by Terrence's mother, Marcia Williams. It was titled, Has Anyone Seen My Son? The letter would play a pivotal role in connecting two hurting families. This is Melanie reading from Marcia's letter to the editor. Please help me find my son, Terrence Williams. On January 12, my son was driving to Naples from Bonita Springs. According to eyewitnesses, at approximately 9 a.m., he was pulled over by a Collier County Sheriff's deputy at 111th Avenue North and Vanderbilt Drive. Terrence parked his vehicle on the cemetery grounds. He did not possess a valid driver's license, registration, or insurance documents. Corporal Stephen Calkins searched him and put him in the back of his vehicle and drove him somewhere. He has not been seen or heard from since. Terrence is the father of four children. The last time I saw my only child was on January 11th. We miss him terribly. Please answer a heartbroken mother's plea. She listed her personal phone number. The need for this letter still hurts my heart. Melanie felt the same. Every time I read it, I get choked up. I just feel this overwhelming sadness about Mm -hmm. it. And um, a little bit of guilt. But Marcia's letter worked in an unexpected way. And as an unabashed fan of newspapers, I love that a letter to the editor played such a critical role. A lawyer helping the Coalition of Immokalee Workers look into the case discovered the letter to the editor when she did an internet search for the name Stephen Calkins. That was the first time Felipe's family and the coalition learned about Terrence's disappearance. The Mexican consulate, along with the coalition, was advocating for a deeper investigation into the disappearance of Felipe Santos. They contacted Marcia and shared the connection that Felipe had vanished three months before Terrence under very similar circumstances. It did not seem like the sheriff's office was eager to publicly share that Calkins was tied to two disappearances, but journalists brought the disappearances to light. In July 2004, six months after Terrence disappeared, Dennis Husty wrote a story with a bombshell that not one, but two men had disappeared after last being seen with Deputy Calkins. It came out that Calkins said he gave the men rides to Circle K's a few miles apart. Dennis talked to the families. Both families were frustrated. Felipe Santos' family was also expressing concern about a lack of investigation on the part of the sheriff's office. But uh, I remember through an interpreter, uh, Felipe's wife, saying that they never even bothered to talk to her about where her husband might have been. Based on my archive search, the Naples Daily News did not immediately follow the story, which was odd because it was certainly compelling, and the competing local papers watched each other's coverage closely. I found Marcia's letter in the digital archives, about a year after Terrence disappeared. I went searching after one of my sources told me that the paper wasn't covering this eerie mystery. I didn't understand why we wouldn't. And when I read the letter... I wondered why it hadn't led to a front-page story. It was also proof that someone at the paper knew about the case, knew about the Calkins link, and still chose not to cover the story. 
It was straight out of my lesson from journalism school on how media outlets often fail missing people of color and their families. I knocked on my editor's door. Can I do more reporting on this? He agreed that I should. Melanie wasn't here when the disappearances happened. She was in California. But she read Dennis's coverage in the Fort Myers news press before she moved here to take a job with the paper. I was coming here as an investigative reporter, and I thought, I'm going to find out what happened to this guy. And it was, you know, I didn't. I just, I didn't. I remember thinking about his mom and just kind of how neglectful we are as a media when something like this happens. Dennis's story just should have been followed. It should have been hammered. You know, we really should have stayed on it. And we didn't. If a cop had picked up two women and then those women, never showed up, there would be no way we wouldn't be all over that. Especially had it been two white women who were attractive. Melanie didn't investigate the disappearances until we started working on this podcast. My stories for the Naples Daily News came out in January 2006, two years after Terrence disappeared. It was the first in-depth coverage on the mystery for the Naples paper. After that, I didn't hammer it either. I left Naples later that year. Our colleague Ryan arrived at the Naples Daily News in 2006. Once I left, he also wrote some stories on the disappearances. Monica Kaysen of the Q Center for Missing Persons said it was very hard to drum up media attention in the early years after Terrence disappeared. A lot of times when we try to involve the media, when we were first really trying to get him out there, they wouldn't come because there was nothing new happening and they called law enforcement and law enforcement is pretty much like, there's nothing new. You know, we felt like it was being downplayed. And I don't think they were doing it to sabotage. I think they were telling the truth. But at the same time, I felt like there were some days where it was just me, Marcia, and her family. And it broke my heart for her because it's like when the media doesn't even show up, it's like, oh, that's, you know, straight out. It doesn't matter. When Terrence's mother, Marcia, and I talked more recently on Zoom, I shared my remorse for what we, the media, didn't do. I'm sorry. (laughs) about that as a member of the media, that the local media weren't better initially as well in covering the stories? It took us so long. It just took us so long to get it out there. But they they didn't want the truth to come out because everybody moves to Naples, it's beautiful Naples, you know. They don't talk about the bad stuff. I remember doing posters, taking posters around, putting them up. I remember the posters being taken down. And the posters would have been a tremendous amount of help, but they were taking them down. Who was taking them down? I don't know. I don't believe that they wanted all of the publicity. So, I believe that's why the media didn't get notification right away. Yeah, because when I was looking back, I was like, why didn't we cover this more? And I think part of it is we weren't getting the whole story from the sheriff's office until you came forward and said, you know, what happened. I pushed with all my heart, and I'm still pushing. I'm I'm still pushing. I'm not going to stop, Janine. You know that. I wasn't trying to excuse the media's failings. But we are dependent on the police for information. And if we don't get updates, we don't have much to write about, unless we find a new angle. 
But we should hunt for new angles and be pesky. If we don't get updates, we should be checking back again and again and again. In the first years after Terrence went missing, his family sent hundreds of letters and emails to national media outlets, but got very few bites. Terrence's cousin shared an email with me she had sent out back then. Here's part of it. I am especially upset because I have seen two white females in a personal interest story involving a kitten, yes, a kitten, receive national attention, which all arose from Florida. Surely a black man deserves at least as much attention as granted to a six-week-old cat. Eventually, the national media would arrive, but it took nearly a decade and required an assist from a major celebrity. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Tyler Perry learned of the case from a TV show in 2012. He immediately began advocating for more coverage. On Facebook, he shared part of my 2006 story and posted this. For the past two days, I have had a knot in the pit of my stomach. I was watching a show on Discovery ID called Disappeared. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. What outraged me the most is that in eight years, not one national news outlet has picked up this story. Eight years and nothing has been done. There was something about this story in Marcia that really landed in my soul. I've been covering this story for a very long time, and yeah. she's amazing in her persistence and her strength. Yeah, and that is the unwavering power of a mother. Mm-hmm. who will fight to the end. You know, I, you know, I look at something as simple as in nature, and when a baby chick is born, how a bird will attack. You, know, you raise that millions of times when you think of a human. So, yeah, it's something that I think she will fight on until she gets answers. 
After learning about the case, Perry reached out to Monica Kaysen, the advocate for Terrence's mother. When Tyler Perry contacted me, I didn't even know who he was. I thought he was like a congressman or something. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, sir, we don't give out numbers of families. And he goes, do you know who I am? And I said, well, I think we've established that. You said your name is Tyler Perry and I'm on a <laughs> uh, Again, if you give me a number to call you back at, I will contact her and see if she wants to talk with you. And, you know, he goes, well, let me give you three numbers. I was like, okay, Mr. Uh-huh. you know, <laughs> so I took the numbers down and it was kind of funny. And so I finally called Marcy on the way home. And I said, hey, this guy called, I think he's a congressman or something, and he wants to help. And, and I said, his, his name is uh, Tyler Perry. And there was a silence. And she's like, what? And she was, oh, my God, Monica. And I said, well, you know, so anyways, I ended up calling him back with her three-way because I still didn't trust him. And we had a great conversation. And then he goes, you seriously didn't know? Once they said Medea, and I was like, oh, okay, now I know who you're talking about. But it's still, I'm not a starstruck person. Like, I don't care who you are. And so when he did follow through, he gained my trust immediately. Marcia felt immense gratitude. And when we connected, it was him. I knew his voice. Who doesn't know his voice, right? I said, thank you to him. And I said, God has sent me an angel. And he told me, he said, I'm going to be your angel. He has helped me so much. Such a great guy. They remain in contact, Perry told me in our interview. She has my number. We talk. I check in on her and make sure she's doing well and she has what she needs. But yes, for sure, she has really become a part of my family. But even Perry struggled to get national outlets interested. He talked about that during a 2018 press conference in Naples. I had a reporter to tell me, an actual reporter from a major network, when I called trying to get attention, saying, well, the victims aren't sympathetic. They aren't sympathetic. Those are the exact words that were said to me. They are not sympathetic, so they didn't want to run the story. That was the second local press conference he was at to draw attention to the cases. The first one was in 2013. I was at that one. I was living in Fort Myers and asked to cover it for the Fort Myers News Press in USA Today. The room was packed, cameras everywhere. Finally, it felt like Marcia's voice was getting the attention it deserved. That day, she stood with confidence before the crowd. It was a stark contrast from the fear she described when I first met her. At the podium, she straightened the crystal necklace that held a photo of her son near her heart. She thanked everyone for being there. Later that day, Marcia told me she felt God working. She felt that Terrence was no longer alive, but she vowed never to give up her fight for justice. The first press conference stoked a wave of national and local stories. It happened again five years later when Perry came for the second press conference. That time, he offered even more of an incentive for someone to come forward with tips. So my hope here, my prayer is, in all of this, in trying to help her, is to just get the answers and get the justice that she deserves, that Terrence's children deserve, that the Santos family deserves. So my hope is that when I first offered the $100,000 reward asking for information, we have not gotten any leads. I'm raising that reward to $200,000 for information. of who we believe to be the culprit in this, which was Steve Calkin. So um, thank you for your time. God bless you. If you could help us get the word out. But even with the coverage that came from the press conferences, I asked Perry if he felt like the media had gotten any better in the decade he's been involved. Unfortunately, I don't. And when I see someone go missing who is not Black, and I see the attention that they get right away and immediately and on every local 
channel where it happened and then going into become national and sometimes international news. I feel badly for the family, but it also reminds me of how difficult it was and still is to get attention for this case, Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos. Yet he's kept at it. After George Floyd's murder in 2020, Perry wrote an essay for People that mentioned the fight for justice for Terrence and Felipe. He was the executive producer on two episodes about the disappearances for a docuseries, Never Seen Again, that came out on Paramount Plus in 2022. When the series was released, Perry wrote a column about the cases for our flagship site, USA Today. Perry told me the episodes developed from a conversation he had with the former president of CBS News. I reached out to Susan Zarensky at CBS News to ask her if there was something she could do to help me get some attention uh, with this Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams case. And she said, we have just started a show called Never Seen Again. And I sent her all the information and she was blown away by it. And she made it the lead show. She could not believe what had happened. And she was outraged and has been a perfect advocate and ally right alongside of us to get attention for these two men. And what do you feel like has been accomplished so far with that series? I think it's put more eyes on it and more people thinking about it. And I think that that's going to be pivotal in keeping it in people's minds. And maybe one day someone will remember something or think something or say something that will change the course of this entire case. As this case grows colder, the series is a ripple of hope for the families. And my hope is that this podcast can be another. But I still hadn't figured out what I could do personally to make missing persons coverage more equitable. It's a problem that has been around for my entire career, and long before that, and doesn't seem to get better. In the big picture, one solution, according to the Black and Missing Foundation, would be to increase diversity in newsrooms. The lack of diversity in newsrooms has also long been a problem. My company, Gannett, is working with a goal to make its workforce as diverse as the communities it serves by 2025. Many news organizations are trying to become more diverse, but they've also carried out layoffs and buyouts that have cut into that diversity. Beyond goals, what else needs to be done? What could I do beyond this reporting? I dug up my 2006 Naples Daily News story and read it more closely. There was a quote from the president of the Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. She said all media should set uniform standards for missing persons coverage. There was my answer, an answer I've held for more than 15 years. I called Melanie. And I got mad at myself when I read that. Like, I did not push for that. (laughs) I'm not aware of any standards for coverage. No, there aren't. And we've got guidelines for, you know, should we use doctor with a guy who has a Ph.D.? (laughs) But, you know, like, yeah, oh, that's a burning issue. I went to my editors. They suggested I reach out to Michael McCarter, managing editor of Standards, Ethics, and Inclusion for Gannett. When I had talked to some experts back then, they said, well, we need to develop (laughs) some standards around missing persons coverage. But I frankly wasn't really sure, even as a journalist, what those would look like. Uh, That's an interesting question because uh, until I had a conversation with you and then I spoke with um, the investigative editor who is also working on a project um, at USA Today about missing individuals. And it wasn't until I had those two conversations that I had 
thought, you know, in, in any great detail about needing some standards around how we approach, uh, you know, that topic and, and, and individuals that are missing. He brought it to his standards and ethics committee. In our preliminary conversations, there was some angst over the approach. You know, do we have the capacity to cover um, or offer coverage for all missing persons and and where that line should be drawn? Um, You know, understanding everything from the fact that maybe in Detroit, Michigan, you could have dozens of people that are reported missing every day versus some of our smaller towns that if one person is missing, that's the biggest thing that's happened to that community in forever. And also keeping in mind that no matter whether it's that small town or a big city with millions of people, those individuals mean something to someone. It's hard to say that every site should follow the exact same blueprint, but we at least want to develop a series of questions that um, each reporter, each site can ask. I've been in the journalism business for 20 years. It was reassuring to hear that my question could be a nudge towards developing standards for our company, which counts thousands of journalists. When I first started reporting this story, I wasn't confident enough to push for newsroom change. The fact that a standard was being developed felt like a small amends for my long-ago failure. Finally, something constructive was being born from my regret. Back to the question driving this episode. How did the media fail Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams? One, Their stories didn't spur national headlines for far too long. And two, once the stories did come out, Felipe and Terrence didn't get the nonstop attention they deserved early on, particularly in the Naples Daily News. That's when local coverage could have helped the most, when people's memories were fresh. It also could have pressured law enforcement to throw even more resources at the cases. I asked Tyler Perry to weigh in on how the media could do better. I understand it could be an enormous job to take on. But if there is balance in everything, I think if you're going to give the slots and times to people who are missing of one race, then certainly there can be some sort of balance to help bring attention to others as well. There is a solution. There is a solution. But frankly, it's not on Tyler Perry to come up with that overdue solution. That's on us, the news media. In the next episode, we'll get back to the investigation into the disappearances and Stephen Calkins. Because I've followed this story so long, I've often been asked by readers, why hasn't Stephen Calkins ever been arrested for the disappearances? Law enforcement says there's no evidence. But how hard did they look? And where? What did they find? Any blood, DNA, or clues as to what may have happened? We did a complete forensic search of that marked unit. We looked in the trunk trying to find bloodstain, fiber, evidence that something untoward maybe had happened inside the vehicle. So the first visit was they brought cadaver dogs, went through the house, each room, through the garage, through the lanai, and they had sonar equipment and they were just checking the whole place out. Was it unusual to have that many people like on a missing persons case? Yep. <laughs> Probably what it's going to take to solve these two is if you can find another victim. That's next time on The Last Ride. I'm Janine Zeitlin, producer, reporter, and writer. Amanda Inscore of the Naples Daily News and the News Press is the audio editor and co-producer. Sound design by Richard Chinqui of WGCU. 
Executive producers are Laura Grenius, Pamela James, and Cindy McCurry-Ross. By the way, WGCU is the reason why it doesn't sound like I'm recording this from below old sweaters in my closet. That's where I began putting this podcast together. The partnership with WGCU allowed us to finally complete this podcast after several years on and off of reporting. So consider donating to WGCU or your local NPR affiliate and support journalism like this by subscribing to your local newspaper, especially if it's the Naples Daily News or the News Press. If you have any information about this case, call the Collier Sheriff's Office at 239-252-9300 or Crime Stoppers at 800-780-8477. If you have anything to share with me, I'm on Twitter at Janine Zeitlin. Reporting by Ryan Mills and Melanie Payne. Additional support from Michael McCarter and Andrew Atkins. Legal review by Tom Curley. Original theme song by Christopher Russell. Audio assistance by Jared Gonzalez. If the topic of this podcast matters to you, be sure to rate the podcast wherever you get it. It makes a difference. Thanks for listening. That makes a difference, too. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.